Hello and welcome to all my listeners. Thank you for joining me for this episode of What's the Tease. Today I'll be talking with the Dame of South African Burlesque, Diva Disaster. Welcome to the show, Diva. Hello, hello, hello. And hello, everyone. <laughs> Great. So for those who don't know, Diva Disaster is the longest performing burlesque artist in South Africa, hence earning the title the original Dame of Burlesque. Yes, that we that we know of. <laughs> that we know of, exactly. <laughs> that we know of. We have so little history to draw from in our country that is actually documented. So it's really hard to know if there was someone out there that was authentically doing burlesque before we came along, but um, not that we have done in our research over the years that we have found. It was more of a different style back then, I think. It was more Vegas showgirl and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So we're going to do a little rewind here. You started performing burlesque in 2007, but had been teasing audiences since 2002 in the ick diseased <laughs> arts. <laughs> so how did your showgirl journey unfold, eventually landing you in burlesque? Okay, I, I had a feeling this would come up because I've obviously now been kind of widely advertising the, the 18 years of teasing the country. And that obviously makes no bloody logical sense when you do the mathematics of a 13-year industry in South Africa. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I did start in the erotic arts in the clubs. And I say it in that way simply because in our country it's still very much frowned upon for women to work in strip clubs and it's... You know, even though it is uh, a lot more sort of open-minded here, I still think that a lot of people, when they're trying to look at something as a, an art form, they don't want the seedy edge or the seedy origins of that art form, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, I started off in the clubs back then. I was sort of uh, fresh out of Johannesburg. I moved over to Cape Town to study, and I did the stereotypical story of... Um, needing to earn enough money to be able to go to varsity. So I started at Teasers and uh, it was an ironic thing for me to do because I wasn't a very self-confident person to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I realized that uh, I was not terribly in touch with my sensuality or sexuality when I did start at those clubs because I was a very awkward duckling didn't know how to dance, like literally just stepped side to side. Like a Russian grabbed my hips the first day I was there and said, now this is how you do it. So I was like, okay. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, like you basically just went for it on the steam of you was feeling your 20 year old oats kind of vibe. Literally, literally like fresh out of school kind of thing. And I, I didn't have a very um, crazy upbringing, I would say. Like I wasn't a wild teenager. I was naughty, sure, but I was definitely a clock exhibitionist. Mm -hmm. But um, having come, come that far and having started at um, Teasers here in Cape Town, um, I actually applied at Mavericks first, which is another club here, but I didn't quite like the club at that time. So I started another one and I was there for several years and I sort of got in touch with myself and then sort of lost myself mm -hmm. because it was an interesting environment. But the interesting thing was for me watching women sort of um, kind of come to terms with their sensuality and their sexuality on their own terms. Mm -hmm. And there's often a misunderstanding that the women that work in those clubs are hard done by. They're, you know, forced to work there. They're absolutely um, sort of 
used in that way. But it's actually mm -hmm. not true because they voluntarily walk into those clubs. They happily walk out with all your money. So, you know, mm -hmm. they really are the ones in the power position in that regard. So I was very much uh, kind of fell in love with the idea that it could change people's lives. And a lot of women were asking for pole dance classes and because a lot of women would come to the clubs and I, I did have a few female followers that would be regulars, mm -hmm. um, having been one of the only open-minded dancers in the club sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it, it basically sort of took off from there and I started teaching ladies privately how to do lap dances for their men. And then the pole dancing started. And then through meeting one of my students, uh, who was Genevieve Eyre, who is now a Miss Scarlet Hearts, mm -hmm. we sort of um, both sort of fell in love and discussed the aesthetic of the corsetry and the stockings and all that beautiful stuff that we both absolutely fell in love with. And that was the sort of introduction to authentic burlesque. Mm -hmm. I'd attempted some burlesque back in the teasers days back in, oh my God, I can't even remember the year right now offhand. <laughs> but there was a lovely, lovely lady, British Liverpool lass, crazy thing, who had worked in Vegas and had done burlesque overseas and all sorts of other sort of things. And she had landed herself in a South African strip club. And she decided like, no, these stage shows are just not stage shows. Let's do something a little highbrow. So we absolutely Moulin Rouged it in some lacy knickers and, you know, nipple caps, not heard of. What are you doing with nipple caps in a strip club? It just makes no logical sense, right? Mm -hmm. So we had this, this little act that five of us put on together and we Lady Marmaladed and did all your free your minds and they didn't get it. So they kind of cut the act and it, we were just <laughs> sitting with these beautiful corsets at home doing nothing while we were forced to wear horrid neon Oh, goodness, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> on costumes, uniforms, and big-ass chunky boots, which were obviously not very attractive or sensual. So mm -hmm. I think having come from that strip club environment where this forced ideal of sexy was basically horrid bikini, neon bikinis, like, like some kind of rugby girls, mm -hmm. um, and then falling in love with the burlesque, you know, and we sort of just decided, well, hells, there's nothing like this that we've seen in our country. Mm -hmm. Let's give it a go. <laughs> And it sort of took off from there. You know, we mentioned earlier on that the history of burlesque in this country is not really that well documented and it's actually like quite hard to come by. So what mm. resources were available to you at the time to help you develop your burly skills? Oh, Mama Jo Weldon had some DVDs mm -hmm. <laughs> that we managed to get and you our had paws a DVD on player. And you know, in those old days where literally the, the resources were absolutely min, there was very little available and um, books, obviously, and Dita Von Tees having been a big brand even then was obviously an inspiration for a lot of people. And Jen was working, Scarlet Hearts was working for the Mac at the time. And obviously she was sponsored by Mac. So we already had like what she was up to and a kind of a, a something to gauge what our burlesque should at least kind of look like. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, very, very different now to what it was, I have to say. So like what sparked like the initial attraction towards the art form? You know, was it the glitz and glamour of it that perhaps you weren't experiencing in the club scene? Or was there something like deeper that you noticed about it that actually like pulled you in? Yeah, I mean, I think the shallow answer would always be, and this is what I tell my students first when they meet me, is that I fell in love with the costumes. I fell and in love with And nothing shallow the... about that. <laughs> 
I did. I fell in love with the costumes and the, the, the uber glam, right? Because it's the unobtainable. It's the selling of a fantasy. Mm -hmm. And um, I think life is just so freaking serious for most of us that we want that fantasy. We want to be able to either be that fantasy or fulfill that fantasy. So, yeah, it was far more empowering than what we were doing in the clubs. And I was one of the girls who I sort of had a moment of self-reflection at one point. I was stripping and I was studying and it was all too much. It was just like craziness and I wasn't sleeping. I, I was you know, getting to college in the mornings and I suddenly had a realization that uh, it's not worth it. What mm -hmm. you're paying me is not worth it. You don't deserve this energy I'm giving you. You don't deserve this, this version of me. This is something that is worth a hell of a lot more. And that kind of like really kind of put my self-worth in perspective and, you know, some therapy and stuff from childhood stuff and it all kind of put everything in perspective. And I loved the fact that burlesque was by woman, for woman, mostly mm -hmm. by woman, for woman, um, because we obviously have far more of a female following than a male following, even though burlesque does sort of, you know, still get programmed for the male gaze, I do think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the pulling in of the waist and the high heels and the overemphasizing of body parts that, you know, is traditionally geared towards a male gaze. I think we're now doing it out of an act of rebellion. We're literally like, yeah, look at my titties. I'm giving you permission because it's under my terms. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that self-empowerment definitely drew me in. And it's something that I've watched develop in all of my students and the incredible women that I've had the honor to share stages with, where I've watched their transformation. Which brings me to my next question, actually. Mm. To this day, many folks in the industry have been met with the question of what exactly is burlesque. So what was your understanding of the art form back then compared to now, like after 14 years? Yeah, I think I've been schooled a lot in the last few years about what burlesque is and what it isn't. And I think it's also something that um, everyone is so kind of focused on the definitions that they forget what the essence is and that it can literally be a healing or just a creative process it can be anything for everyone mm -hmm. but i teach the history of burlesque now I, I've, I've always kind of like done it bits and pieces in my syllabus while teaching in my academy but now i've got sort of the focused workshops and one of them being the history of burlesque i've definitely had to reschool myself because being a very white south african i have definitely had a certain programming and had access to a very limited history of things. Mm -hmm. So when I've started to discover the history of the costuming and the, how different things have been sort of misinterpreted and misrepresented over the years, mm -hmm. and it's uh, terribly sad. So I'm sort of trying to correct that in my own teachings. But burlesque, their origins, origins that are burlesque, this sort of 1800s, were a spoof. They were uh, a type of performance style. Mm -hmm. They used to spoof the operas. They used to spoof the fancy folk. It was very much um, a more satirical art form. And I think, like I say, it, it's the bloody Americans that got involved. And it, I'm not blaming the Americans. I'm not saying that <laughs> no one else was doing it. I kind of like what they I, did with from, it. From, <laughs> well, yeah, they turned it into striptease. Thank the glitter gods, because otherwise, what, would, what career would I have had all these years? <laughs> But um, I think their focus was on um, the striptease element, on, on that risque element. And I don't blame them because if you look at the history of women, um, burlesque is a rebellion. It's a rebellious art form that goes against the norms of society or what we're told the norms of society are. Mm -hmm. So 
a woman bumping and grinding her hips was positively, first of all, um, you know, devious and satanic. Come on now. That's mm -hmm. not a very religious thing to do. And then obviously it's just not the moral thing to do because um, women were and their bodies were owned, I think, by the patriarchy. So mm -hmm. we were told what to do with our bodies. We were told how to look and how to express ourselves. And um, I think burlesque rebelled against that. And I think that's where we're trying to you know, sort of bringing back now with this global revival of burlesque, the focus has very much been on the internal j journey and not just, I'm, an, I'm just an entertainer, I'm here for your pleasure, I'm, I'm just a piece of fluff for you to stare at. No, it's very much a personal journey. And I, like I say, I see it in all of the girls that, and gentlemen that I perform with, where they're using it as a transformative art form. They're literally trying to have fun and have a little sense of self-expression, absolutely. Awesome. So in 2007, you founded the first burlesque company in South Africa, Black Orchid Burlesque with Scarlet Hearts. So how did you go about presenting burlesque in those early days to an audience who were largely ignorant regarding this performance art? Um, I think as tamely and demurely as we possibly could push that envelope <laughs> because... Mm -hmm. Um, when we started out, the only place that would host us, and I'm, I'm not saying that we were limited to, but we thought the only place that would host us was a strip club because it was far too naughty and risque to be mainstream. It had never been done before. You know, pole dancing was not a thing yet at all. So back then we thought of a sort of like a nice, what I now call a corporately viable burlesque, you know, mm -hmm. something that is just like that movie that misrepresented our art form a little bit, mm -hmm. but uh, something that was a little bit easier to digest for the, the common audience, but was also um, pushing the envelope of what was considered just cabaret, but not to the point where it was naughty strippers that are to be frowned upon and they're so dirty. You mm -hmm. know, we didn't, we wanted to try and break the boundary before, between that. And ironically, now I teach and I'm like, guys, can we just accept we're all strippers? Like, just mm -hmm. use the word. It's okay. It's not dirty. You're not, you know, doing, <laughs> you're not doing this for money. No, we do. We try. We absolutely try to do this for money. Mm -hmm. But um, we, <laughs> that's a whole story, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But uh, we tried to present it in a very, like, um, cabaret production it was a, a multi-faceted thing we had different entertainers in and that's actually where we had lady magnolia for the very first time before she was lady magnolia on a, one of our stages as a belly dancer and we sort of represented different entertainment styles in one sort of production with some fancy champagne and all of all of the, the frills and whistles that we could possibly muster on our tiny budgets at that point mm -hmm. and it, it did okay it really wasn't like a, a big phenomenon but we did manage to get into a couple of papers and then it definitely sort of drew more interest and then our first real outside of a strip club like a real public event mm -hmm. was at a bar called kink bar here in cape town in gardens and it was super exclusive. It, went, it just opened. They headhunted us from the strip club. We had a lovely meeting with them. And we were like, yes, <laughs> please. <laughs> We'd love to have a different stage. Yes, let's do this. Yeah, we got to kind of perform in the space, which took us off of a massive stage and made us think out of the box. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful for those experiences now because it's what I teach and implement in my own performance styles is that you don't know where you're going to land up. You could be performing on a one meter by one meter podium or you could have a massive casino stage. Mm -hmm. And the ability to adapt to any space is also, it really does help put that little sprinkle of professionalism over, I think. But cool. um, 
Yeah, it's easier now. I think people are a little bit more open-minded than they were. And we see that in the types of people who are coming to our shows as well. You know, it's not just the, the wild woman and the bachelorettes and the, the, the bachelors who want to come in. It's now couples that bring their kids, you know, like, this is my son. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so over 18s only. <laughs> I mean, you have to start somewhere, you know. Exactly. <laughs> so back to Diva Disaster. What influences your burlesque and how has your style evolved over the years? Gosh, that's a, it's a very big question and it's something I've actually been self-reflecting on a fair amount in, in this last pandemic days because mm -hmm. I think we're all kind of questioning our place in the world and what the hell have we done with our lives. <laughs> Mama said it wasn't a real job, but um, we're, all, we're all making it work. But... Mm -hmm. uh, I think my main influences for burlesque are a little bit of everything. I'm definitely influenced by classic burlesque in the aesthetic of it, but I'm a metalhead by heart, so mm -hmm. I do like performing to alternative music. And at first I sort of tried to forcibly keep the two apart because I didn't think the corporates that were going to be paying my bills were going to like the fact that I was dancing in seedy goth clubs. Mm -hmm. You know, it sort of was a, a different level of performance that we were trying to present than the super uber glam fantasy that we were trying to sell the big corporates like Vodacom, etc. Mm -hmm. um, nowadays, I think I'm not just influenced by a song or a costume or a concept. I, I am now, I think in the last four or five years, no, definitely four years, uh, I'm feeling things a lot more. I'm trying to express what's inside me and not trying to present what I think everybody wants to see. Mm -hmm. um, I had a severe crisis of character a couple years ago where I literally was like, what the hell am I doing this for? Who am I doing this for? Why am I doing it? Shall I carry on performing because I need to produce acts or shall I do this because I want to create art? Because mm -hmm. I think the approach is entirely different. Um, and I feel like I'm connecting to the art form a lot more now than I used to, um, mainly because I probably am way more connected to my body since the surgery. Mm -hmm. But um, I think having, having access to online classes now, I think my influences are definitely broadening. I've had some class, I've done a class with Pearl Noir. I've, I've managed to do one with Aurora Galore, a fantastic UK performer who's a fan dancer. I've always envied her vicious fan dancing. So I've, I've had a chance to take burlesque classes almost for the first time, and it's been phenomenally inspirational to me. So I've now gotten super kind of creative juices going, and I'm working on three different acts, which are three utterly different acts completely. Um, mm -hmm. I do try and challenge myself by, by doing as many styles within the art of burlesque as possible or, or kind of exploring the different genres. I always felt like as a teacher, I could never teach it if I haven't done it. So I forcibly made all of my students as well and all of my troop members try different styles and go into different genres to, to test their boundaries and get outside their boxes as well of what was comfortable for them. Because gotcha. you never know where you might excel in something else. Indeed. In 2018, you had to have hip surgery. So how has this impacted your burlesque career? Yeah, I fell on my ass. <laughs> I literally fell on stage. On, and, and I'm going to tell this as a cautionary tale because it was the most what appeared to be minor fall. I just collapsed like a concertina on stage. My foot slipped out from underneath me. Don't dance on carpets and heels. 
Mm -hmm. um, and I was doing my fantabulous little fan dancing, tassel twirling at the end with a live band. And I just collapsed down, kind of just like a concertina, just flat down. And I thought, well, show must go on. And I sort of just carried on with the feathers and everything, thinking, oh, my ankle's a bit sore. And I thought I'd bug it up my ankle. Mm -hmm. uh, little did I know that uh, two years <laughs> later, having ignored that injury for two years, don't do it. Your body is your vessel. Without it, you cannot do what you love. Mm -hmm. So I left it for two years. It got significantly worse. And yes, absolutely, I had to have a hip surgery where it turned out to be not just a, a labral tear, which is the sort of like socket that your hip bone uh, ball joint sits in. I tore it. I didn't just tear it. I kind of split it in half. Mm -hmm. So I did a real great job. I did a disaster at it all the way. You did a real um, number on yourself. Yeah, disaster mm -hmm. by name and reputation. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I had to have the surgery and it was a huge, huge thing because I was sort of carrying on like the brave soldier I was, but slowly kind of losing functioning and not being able to teach as much as I could. And the troop was definitely noticing it. And I was cranky. I was a bitch, man. Like being in pain constantly and all day, I definitely became another creature. I will be absolutely honest. Mm -hmm. So that made the husband fox turn around and say, that's it. We're dealing with this. Mm -hmm. So having it diagnosed and then um, having to just decide like the only way to get me away from work was to literally forcibly remove me from the situation. Mm -hmm. So we moved off down to the coast, down in KwaZulu-Natal, where my mum is and went to a tiny seaside village, had my <laughs> surgery done there. And yeah, they fixed me up real good. And now a couple years later, I'm now somewhat back to the functioning I was, mm -hmm. but um, it definitely affected my self-esteem because I couldn't move like I used to. I just didn't see how I was ever going to have the same career. They were like, you should maybe think of another career. And mm -hmm. I just figured like, there's no ways I'm going to dance until this thing's dead. Like, so now, fortunately, it has been strengthening and I'm far more agile. Not the dancer I was, but I'm a different dancer. And that yeah. in itself taught me a very big life lesson because stop putting expectations on yourself because you think everyone else is putting expectations on you, but it's not. It's you. You're putting gotcha. your own expectations on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. not only are you the headmistress of mischief at the Bob Academy, but also fulfill the role of producer and compare. So another character, Professor Didi Boobs, also appears regularly to perform her duties as MC in the Black Orchid Burlesque Productions. What is the relationship between Diva Disaster and Professor Didi Boobs? Um, okay, so, so Dee Dee Boobs would absolutely take over my career if she had half a chance, but she has got no talent. So she, <laughs> she has been the MC. All well and no and way. Big, <laughs> absolutely. She has been the, the hostess with the mostest uh, since the SA Burlesque Express was born, which was a little show that we ran for seven years. And the character was actually born slightly before that and I had only done her once or twice. But I learned through her that I had a little of a penchant for comedy, which mm -hmm. I didn't expect. I think I'm a bit of a clown in my normal life. But uh, yeah, that happened. Uh, sorry to interject there, but I didn't realize that you learned that you had a penchant for comedy from Professor Didi Boobs. Uh, because it's <laughs> been my experience that you always kind of had a flair for it in your performances. I, re I recall a drunken sailor girl act 
quite early on in your career. <laughs> she was legitimately drunk. She was sponsored by Sailor Jerry's rum, and that was a six months I cannot remember from my life. So no, I'm joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, absolutely. No, I, I think the Diva Disaster was born from when I started my career. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be Mr. Star. I was like, that's it. I'm going to be Dita Von Teese of South Africa. Like, mm -hmm. come on. It's going to happen. I've got the fringe. It's happening. Mm -hmm. No, it, it turned out that way. I fell flat on my face the first day I went out on stage. So, like, a disaster was born, right? Mm -hmm. So, careful how you choose your names. It literally will choose your career for you. I always felt that the, the comedy was just, I, I, I come from my, my dad is very funny. My dad, my dad was very funny. My sister is quite funny. So, we sort of always had that in our family. But, um, it's always been a little bit more like on the self-deprecating humor side. And that's mm -hmm. also something I've had to address in my comedy in my burlesque is that we kind of take the piss out of ourselves to make the audience feel comfortable. And this is something I do as an MC all the time. Um, we take the piss out of ourselves to make the audience feel more relaxed because perhaps this is a new experience for them. Perhaps this is the first time they've seen a brazen woman in nothing but her knickers, you know. So you kind of want them to feel more at ease. So you take the piss out of yourself. Mm -hmm. And now I've learned to sort of edit that comedy and be more entertaining rather than just being, haha, look at me, I'm so silly. And I think that helps a little bit. But uh, currently, Dee Dee Boobs is in the dog box because she's an old colonialist bitch and she needs to learn some manners. <laughs> <laughs> she's based off of a character that should really not play a role in today's society. So I'm trying to figure out what to do with her at this moment in time. Fair enough. So you've put <laughs> Dee Dee in a corner. Yes. She might have to do a whole act about being schooled. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Though yourself and Black Orchid are based in Cape Town, you've also established a branch mm. of Bob in Johannesburg. So what are the logistics of coordinating a burlesque company in multiple cities? Chaos. Um, mm -hmm. No, it does take, it takes a team. It literally does take those people in that side of the world uh, doing their thing as well and it's been a very interesting experience because obviously we do have a very small South African community I mean what is there like a hundred of us <laughs> I think there's there's a very small contingent that we're drawing from and from that in terms of like the people who you would consider to be professional level it's an even smaller contingent but um, having that branch up that side was just sort of natural progression for me I came from Johannesburg I, I went to high school there was born there even though I grew up in Durban Mm -hmm. um, so opening a branch there seemed natural. It seemed like, well, Cape Town loves this art form, like totally. We're just going to go to Joburg and do this there, right? Mm -hmm. And we didn't intend to start a troupe there, but obviously having traveled up and down the country to do shows there at the Blues Room in Santon, we had gotten a few fans and girls had decided like, yeah, absolutely, this is what we want to do. And it definitely um, it was a slow build because Ironically enough, Johannesburg is more conservative than we are here in Cape Town, which mm -hmm. I thought was like, no, that's not going to happen. Cape Town is a hell of a lot more cosmopolitan, I think, and that's why we're more open-minded. But Joburg did not receive burlesque as well as we thought it would. And I think now still they're, they're expecting that idea of casino showgirl. They're not really expecting the girls to come out and do nipple caps and muff caps and mm -hmm. you know some merkins and things so it's a little bit shocking to Joburg sometimes and obviously it depends on what type of burlesque you're speaking about because there are still girls that are performing um, beautiful burlesque act mm -hmm. but running that troupe 
um, from afar was a challenge in that you're trying to kind of implement the way you do things and I had to learn very quickly that it didn't work out. You know, you have to give them a lot more leeway. You have to let them discover things on their own terms in terms of their own target audience because it's not the same as the Cape Town crowd. A lot of corporate requests in Joburg that <laughs> were, we don't want under, we don't want oversized 30 and we don't want over age 30. Mm -hmm. right? And they, and ironically, Johannesburg, even back then, was specifically asking for ladies of color which we did not have. Mm -hmm. So we didn't get a lot of gigs in Joburg that we did here because they had a very specific idea in mind of what burlesque was. Mm -hmm. But the community up there is doing well. I currently just, FYI, currently don't have any troops. Black Orchid Burlesque is operating mainly as a school online, mm -hmm. but I don't have any existing troops because we sort of dissolved along the way with between um, me deciding to focus on my solo career mm -hmm. and the pandemic, it all sort of like coincided to just be a, a excuse my language, clusterfuck. Yeah. And we decided, no, let's just follow what the universe is telling us and we're gonna just do this thing. So okay. having, having my Joburg girls up there, they're still doing their thing. They're running their solo jobs and their, their solo careers. Um, obviously we're still promoting we're trying to still be a platform for the community at large, um, where there's not much burlesque going on here, very sadly enough. I think mm -hmm. we're all feeling a little itchy right now to get back on the stage. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we will overcome, as our president says. <laughs> yeah. And there will be more shows and we will all tour eventually. <laughs> Indeed. Speaking of touring, you have put on shows in Cape Town, Johannesburg, and also mm. toured KwaZulu-Natal. Is there yes. like a key difference in the way burlesque is received by audiences in these various cities? Like if you can think of one to two words, I'll say Cape Town, how's burlesque received here? Wonderfully, enthusiastically. Johannesburg. Oh, it's so tough. I would say very objectively mm -hmm. and very judgmentally. Durban. In my, in my opinion, okay, because this yes, is just yes, my yes. opinion. I'm not speaking for the community because I know it is very different up that side yeah. of where we are here. Durban were shocked. Mm -hmm. um, we, I, I lived in Durban for a very long time and I honestly thought that when we finally got a, a good show going in Durban for the first time, that they would just eat it up with a spoon. Durbanites are, are renowned for being very easygoing. Yes. And my, my, uh, they were absolutely horrified. <laughs> they, they didn't understand the humor. They, um, they loved the costumes, but thought they were very scanty. And I don't know if it was simply the area of the theater that we were performing in or the fact that they just had no sort of previous reference to what this was. Mm -hmm. So they didn't know what to expect or they perhaps watched that movie I referenced earlier <laughs> and thought that that's what they were going to see. And unfortunately, and then, that's not what they got. Nipple tasseling. No, they got a whole lot extra, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I have been fortunate to have toured the country a couple of times, not just for the, the burlesque, but also with the metal scene, having mm -hmm. done music festivals. And funny enough, I would say that I had completely different experience having toured and doing alternative burlesque with the metal bands and with that sort of scene, I had nothing but well received in every town. I oh, think right. Johannesburg thought that we were a bit tarty. They, they definitely looked us up and down a little more, but Durban 
they just went absolutely nuts. They, they lost it in the mind. So it's interesting. So I, alternative burlesque, something very edgy, something a little bit more dark and dangerous, angle grinders and, you know, fire and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And they just went nuts for it. But I guess it was perhaps the audience that we were playing to were a bit more open-minded than the maybe perhaps snobby area that mm -hmm. we did in Durban. Mm -hmm. which ironically I went to high school for a little while in that area so mm -hmm. <laughs> all right so costume designing and prop making a skill set that you had mm. prior to entry into the burlesque industry or did it arise out of necessity so nobody knows this but I I've always done sewing and and needlework and and that sort of thing I kind of got raised in old South African way of women must know how to sew their men's socks and you must know how to be a good housewife and all of those things so you must know how to sew, you must know how to do needlework. So I, I just loved it. I didn't think of it as being like a, a chore at all, like my sister did, mm -hmm. bless you. But she didn't, she hated it all and I kind of loved the creation part of it. And then what people don't know is that I kind of mainly got into sewing, making teddy bears. And I was doing that, to, ironically, to supplement my income as a stripper mm -hmm. <laughs> while I was studying. I know, very wholesome. utterly bizarre. Absolutely. I'm a very weird dynamic of a person, I have to say. But uh, yeah, I got into that and then obviously making little outfits for myself and that sort of thing. But it was the burlesque that pushed me into creating things for myself and for others because when we started out, there was nothing that we could access that was even vaguely opulent and glamorous. You know, you had to go to a private designer in order to have those things made. And I mean, my, most of them were like, who, Bob Mackie, what? Mm -hmm. you know, they've never heard of these sort of costume designers of these opulent beaded numbers and you know can you make me a 1920s flapper dress so we sort of just started arts and crafting our way through it and, and beading our own brassiers and wonder bras and such things and uh, it led me to like no actually I don't want to buy a wonder bra and have a bra that every other woman might be wearing in the audience. I want this to be unique. I want this to be gorgeous. Mm -hmm. So I started creating all of those bits and pieces for myself. And, and obviously the fans, that was my first, very first solo. I didn't actually make my very first fans. A friend of mine did. And um, then I later started making them because no one was. And there was a demand for them as more and more burlesque dancers were coming up in the ranks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just started sort of outsourcing my skills to outside of my own troupe as well. And now I'm very lucky to have put some G-strings and Pacey's and some of the most, you know, famous South African dancers' asses. So I'm very happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I love making beautiful things. Yeah, it, it really is half my passion for burlesque is, is making the beautiful costumes. So I'm always very happy to make costume dreams come true. Awesome. So in recent years, you've had the opportunity to perform in the UK. What did you learn from your experience performing on the international stage? I learned that the idea of we need to be internationally viable before we can put ourselves out there is just a myth. Mm -hmm. I think South Africa is still very kind of um, self-conscious about what is our brand of burlesque? What do we put out into the world? How do we get our brand of burlesque out there when there's so much good burlesque? Why would they bother taking us onto a lineup, you know? We have to have something that is that good with that many feathers, with that many rhinestones, which we know now that is absolute rubbish, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how many rhinestones or feathers you have on your costume. It doesn't make you a better dancer at all. Mm -hmm. So I think just getting onto a, a, an international lineup and just 
having fun. And I did it very low key. It wasn't about like getting onto a big lineup or anything. Ironically, I had applied for London Burlesque Festival the year before mm -hmm. I went in for surgery. So oh. that would have been my, my year, but um, not, not too sad that that opportunity is gone, to be mm -hmm. honest. But uh, there's a multitude of things that I still want to be able to do. It's just time and ability and finances <laughs> of course the trifecta of opportunity <laughs> so what has been a career highlight for you to date hmm, i i knew you were going to ask this question right and i really have tried to think because i think in the last four years i've definitely become a hell of a lot more grateful for the opportunities i've had um, having had my kind of feet swept out from under me And I've had a really good career. I've been very privileged and very lucky in that I've had my husband, King St. Fox, push my career in places that I wouldn't necessarily have, you know, like the music festivals and things. Mm -hmm. um, so I have had that constant force driving me behind me to do better, to do new things. And it would not be the same without that. Mm -hmm. um, But yes, I did have a think about that question. And yes. one of my top highlights, I can't tell you one of them because I'd probably get into a lot of trouble. It has to do with being baked in a cake and jumping out of it for a musician's birthday. But we won't talk about that. We'll talk about my... <laughs> I'm going to give you naughty things about my vices in life. But um, yeah, baked in a cake was one of them. But... Uh, Trash Cabaret, I have to say, like it was a love-hate relationship. I was a producer, costumier, choreographer, uh, and performer for Trash Cabaret, which was a so mm -hmm. social circus that ran for a few years. And it was the most phenomenal experience because it brought people from all walks of life together to perform on one stage. Mm -hmm. And I personally hadn't had that opportunity other than being in the strip clubs where literally those girls are from every walk of life. You know, there mm -hmm. is no differentiation between where they come from. But um, this sort of massive social project that we took on where we provided a platform um, for performers that perhaps weren't able to get into a different audience perhaps, you know, perhaps they can't afford the venues, perhaps they don't have the access to marketing. So we, we created this beautiful circus of craziness and it was a live band and at its heyday there were 70 performers. We performed at Africa Burn in the, in the desert, which is like the Burning Man of mm -hmm. Seas. And uh, running a 70 person circus in the desert was not fun. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to kind of wrangle that many creatives, it was, yeah, it was absolute madness, but what an experience. Yeah. And the shows that we hosted through Trash Cabaret were some of my fondest memories because it was the connection between the live music, the audience, the performers. We were like a little family mm -hmm. and it was just this unique energy exchange. And that's what I love about entertainment in general. And that's why I love live music and live bands is that they, they do, they, they send out energy on stage and you receive it and you give it straight back to them with all that love and throwing of panties and whatever you need to do, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's a beautiful thing. Amazing. And finally then, Diva Disaster. You mentioned that you had, well, three acts in the works. Mm. So what exciting projects do you have coming up um, on your Belize calendar for 2021? And where can we follow and support your work? Okay, so 
I have got a Patreon account that has different tiers where you can either apply as a fan where you can see all the beautiful behind the scenes stuff and some bit naughtier sort of not safe for work stuff mm -hmm. or you can join as the seductive secrets tier and that gets you straight into a little portal of um, burlesque advice tips and techniques uh, intimate information from from my career and just sort of a, a no holds barred space where we discuss everything and anything to do with burlesque and i'm busy kind of like building that up but my website is finally being um, updated because I kind of gave up on it a, a while ago, having thought that I wasn't going to have a future burlesque career with my hip. I mm -hmm. sort of let it go. But now that's being built up again. So that's stevedisaster.online. And obviously, Facebook, Instagram, are wonderful, easy ways to keep up to date. But in terms of what's happening on the calendar who the hell knows man we mm -hmm. i think we're all just confused about what do we do we just want to go and perform live on stage but we can't and you know south africa is in this kind of permanent state of lockdown in two different levels mm -hmm. and i'm just waiting desperately for the opportunity to host something live but we do have a little online vibe going and that is the exposed mm -hmm. the at-home experience and mm -hmm. that's going to be my easter show we used to host live here in cape town that easter show will be online um we're more than likely going to be hosting it off of the website because of music rights etc and all the different platforms giving us issues you know mm -hmm. what an interesting interesting experience we've all had as performers you know we're we're used to wearing the different hats of uh, producer, costumier, choreographer, you know, most burlesque dancers do it all themselves. Mm -hmm. Most burlesque dancers do it all themselves, but now we're all having to learn how to do videography and lighting and, you know, we don't have our trusty sound guys hitting play and our stage managers cueing mm -hmm. us and we're having to kind of um, change our art form to be a digital format and I've had to take my classes and since June last year I've been teaching online which has been fantastic it's kept me out of trouble mm -hmm. and I've spread my mischief across the globe I have some fantastic students in the UK currently that cause mischief with me on the weekly I'm trying to focus myself on not getting too excited about too many different ideas and just doing burlesque for this for the fun of it and not to create serious art mm -hmm. um, because I've got lots of classic acts and I've got loads of acts that I can kind of go back and rework, but I sort of want to do stuff that I feel. Mm -hmm. And I think having, having done some of the burlesque classes like Pearl Noir's classes, um, really connecting me to my body and the art form, I feel like I've got a different message to convey and I think I'm going to try and focus on that, which means you're going to see a hell of a lot more naughty, kinky stuff from Diva Disaster because <laughs> my naughty side will come out more. Um, and other than that, yeah, the focus is trying to get all my bits and pieces together to eventually get my book done. It's been something that's a sideline project for years. And uh, it's going to basically just be a little inside look into the adult entertainment industry and the misogyny and the patriarchy that w exists within it and how burlesque sort of kind of reclaims that because here in South Africa, at least, it's all run by a woman. Mm -hmm. There are no male producers in our country. <laughs> so I think we're all pretty proud of that as well. Um, but yeah, that's me in a nutshell, doing as many freaking things as I possibly can keep my time occupied with. Wow. To keep it, out of trouble. Wow.
It all sounds pretty <laughs> excited and I'm looking forward to it. At this point, I'd like to say thank you, Diva Disaster, for joining me on this episode of What's the Tease? It's been an absolute treat. Thank you. And thank you for this incredible podcast that you have brought to the global community. It has been super educational.